I'm Alex. And I'm Matt, and welcome back to the show. Our guest this episode is Cale Weston. He represented the United States for more than a decade as a State Department official. Washington acknowledged his multi-year work in Fallujah with the Marines by awarding him one of its highest honors, the Secretary of State's Medal for Heroism. You can follow his work at jkweston.com, and his latest book is The Mirror Test. So, Alex, what have you been up to? Um, well, since our last episode, I have moved um, all of my few possessions to Amman in Jordan, um, where I'm based now. Um, and I don't entirely have something specific that I'm doing here, but I'm working on writing and doing language coaching um, and, uh, yeah, just kind of uh, figuring out the, the next steps. But one thing which I've been doing recently while I was here was... Um, writing up a bunch of kind of lessons and tools and things which helped me out uh, over the process of writing my PhD. Um, and possibly we might actually do a uh, kind of follow-up episode where you and I talk about this. Um, but kind of in the meantime, you can check this out, alexstrick.com slash blog, and you'll find all of those posts um, and people seem to have found them useful. Yeah, actually, to to second that, um, to listeners, if you are involved in trying to productively do uh, anything with a computer or an iPhone, <laughs> uh, I would highly recommend you take a look at this series of posts. Uh, it's one of those things where we can take advantage of the fact that Alex has really looked into this and uh, we can build, uh, take that knowledge and just apply it to our own lives as we see fit, all kinds of uh productivity things for whatever you're involved in um while also and this is what i always appreciate about your work alex um wary of kind of the tech domination of our lives and whether that is ultimately always um you know should be the habitual instinct to to just add more tech to our lives so top stuff from my end slash our end um alex and i have uh put together uh, um a new uh, foundation, which will be completely unsurprising to anybody who's listened to the show before. Um, we've uh, kick-started this summer with an, an academic at Boston University, um, something called the Spaced Repetition Foundation. Um, it is exactly what it sounds like. We're trying to become a uh, kind of essentially an independent, no agenda whatsoever, clearinghouse for just ideas on um, increasing the utilization of spaced repetition as a learning tool, whatever that learning may be, formally in the education sector or privately for individual use. Um, and the website's up and running. It's spacedrepfoundation.org. And uh, you'll see there are our bios, and we're putting together a list of resources that uh, we think people would be interested in um, and that kind of demonstrates the efficacy of this learning technique and also um, how it's being utilized by other folks and will be, uh, I think the idea has come later this fall and definitely early 2017 to, to kind of kickstart some literature with uh, the three of us wearing um, our, our hats here trying to push for more people to use this um, because a lot of people are trying to learn things and almost nobody knows about this idea. Um, so, yeah, we, I mean, we, you know, we, yeah. we take a pretty, pretty broad uh, broad approach to exactly what you mean by spaced repetition and you know we're we're pretty holistic or 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 as i said broad in that you know it's 
it's it's about like having reviews of the thing that you're doing and you know space repetition can just be every time you read a book you know you write a review or you write down like the 10 points which kind of meant something to you um uh which um yeah will will help you kind of synthesize what you're what you're learning uh, and it's not just kind of learning for learning skills. It can be right. um, learning things in other areas of your life, whether it's language or sports or, you know, computer skills or whatever. Um, and, um, yeah, I'm excited about, like, all of the different kind of ways that we can um, bring these different areas um, kind of together through through this idea of space repetition. Exactly. And, you know, to show how I use it, uh, I now never forget people's uh, birthdays and critical dates and all these things. So uh, it also works as a bar trick um, to uh, show, um, uh, you know, when when you attended weddings or parties or all that kind of stuff. You can use it for anything. So uh, it's fantastic. Uh, uh, Tell me about the show this week. Interesting show. Yeah, exactly. So this was just uh, Kale and I. Um, and we got to chatting, uh, about his work, uh, mainly in Iraq, but he was also in Afghanistan and the theme, uh, again, we are nothing if not consistent on what we talk about on this show. And I think, uh, people find it very enjoyable. This is a very highly decorated foreign service officer who worked for, uh, 10 years in the state department, uh, in the essentially hardest posts, um, on the ground, um, to, uh, uh, essentially try to implement uh, American, often in coordination with the uh, Europeans and others, uh, but American foreign policy in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And he goes really deep into um, the mechanics of how this functioned and what works and doesn't work. And I think uh, the show will be very interesting to to folks. Um, it stresses the usual themes of, um, you know, the usefulness and importance of learning languages, of getting out into the communities you're trying to understand and work with. Um, and uh, he talks about this mainly from his three-year stint in uh, Fallujah, um, a city very much uh, that was recently back in the headlines, and how he'd worked there and the Iraqis and Americans that he'd worked with there. Um, it's uh, very, very interesting, and, and it was a pleasure to uh, have him on the show. I should note that... Um, this is a, a very American-centric uh, show, so we use uh, the words we, us, etc. Uh, quite a bit. But the, the idea of the thing is, um, is very similar to, to folks from, from kind of any embassy or government that, that you cross paths with. So um, their constraints and thoughts and um, uh, what they were thinking. So, yeah, Alex, I think, uh, I think people find it interesting. And without further ado, here's the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, be with us today. Um, curious, as a first question to, to start the show, you know, going all the way back to the start, what, what got you interested in joining uh, the Foreign Service? Was it a thing you studied in college or a course or general news, 9-11? Um, what, what put this on the radar for you? Uh, it was failing out of my PhD program, of all things. <laughs> but I, I, I say that it was sort of a, a willing fail. I originally thought I, I was going to kind of go the academic route and have great respect for people who are able to push through a full PhD program. But I was in London and uh, found myself reading the newspapers and the headlines and kind of what the issues of the day were more than I was uh, diving deep into some of the theories that were tied to my uh, dissertation at the time. So I... Uh, 
realized government was probably more uh, more in my line and took the exam, got lucky and passed it. And, and I think also as a kid, you know, a lot of my friends were foreign exchange students. So if there's one pattern when you look back that I still see, it's I was spinning the globe from a young age and kind of curious what was going on far away rather than close to home. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think that you were end up as, as serving as <laughs> occasionally the literal point person for, uh, for America's uh, kind of more adventurous uh, foreign policy undertakings? Uh, not at all. I, uh, you know, I started to focus a lot on European issues, the EU, European Union. I did a master's thesis on actually Norway's revolt, you know, kind of separate uh, arrangement with the EU. So I was focused sort of on traditional international relations stuff. Um, but I happened to join and, and, and be involved in our policy right when, you know, around 9-11 and then after. So I think I didn't have a clue that we were going to be starting two big wars, you know, in the late 90s when I was started. And then in 2001, when that happened, um, I think everyone career trajectory uh, started to change pretty quickly, at least if you wanted to to maybe go where you felt you should be, not necessarily where you always wanted to be. Right, right. Um, your, your book is fantastic in the basis of our, our discussion um, today. I'd like to talk uh, starting first with Iraq and then Afghanistan, just the, like the course of your book. Um, you know, specifically, you were uh, more or less, from what I can gather, and please click correct me where I'm wrong, uh, the State Department's sole man or one of a very few people uh, in Anbar in Fallujah specifically for three years. Um, what does implementing U.S. foreign policy actually look like in terms of day-to-day work that you were conducting? Is it lots of emails or handshakes, meetings, out in the field, behind a desk, all of the above? What? Yeah, I'll, I'll, some of the background is is that when the Iraq War kicked off, you know, it was a, a def- Department of Defense run operation. It was dominantly a military run occupation, military occupation, and under UN Security Council resolutions. And I was based on our mission in New York. We had the authority of, of an occupying power that came with the responsibilities. When we handed power back to the Iraqi government, and Ambassador Bremer got out of town, you know, the summer of '04. Uh, my boss at the time, Ambassador Negroponte, wanted his political people out with the regional military command. So there had been a temporary guy in Ramadi for a bit, but I was really the the, the first full-time uh, political guy at, in Fallujah working with um, General Conway. That, I thought, was going to be about a year. It did turn into almost three years. How you do it on the ground is you, you call a lot of audibles. I, uh, I learned that as in most things in life, if you can build a good relationship first with your, your military colleagues and the generals and colonels and captains and corporals, you can try and handle any challenge, uh, usually pretty well. Um, but if those relationships go off, uh, or there's distrust or, or personality issues, uh, you end up spending more time fighting each other than what we're there to do, which is to, to implement, uh, counterinsurgency, and that quickly was our, our our main task. Is the Sunni insurgency in Ambar was really the killing fields for American troops for most of that period between 2004, uh, really until 2007. Mm-hmm. In in that time, you talked about 
um, you know, the relationship you, you built with, uh, among others, you know, this Iraqi trucking community going through Ambar and Fallujah, you know, how did that relationship come about? Why was that? You, you reference it in your book at length and kind of what they were telling you about uh, Iran and what they were doing in Iraq. Um, you know, how did that relationship come about and, and you know, for what, what use was that in, uh, in terms of just an ear to the ground on what was going on? Yeah, it was a completely unexpected uh, job responsibility when I when I did get to Iraq that first year. I was told I was going to work with the the truckers, and I was intimidated and nervous. And what do I know about that whole world? But I think I learned, and they taught me pretty quickly that the way you, I think, understand uh, any country that's as foreign as they get is by trying to interact with maybe the ordinary everyday people as opposed to the formal government to government relationships that's inherent and essential in what a diplomat and, and state department personnel do and department of defense personnel do and phone calls from the white house I, that's all part of it but i think where you, you really get a sense of if things aren't going so well or if they are working is when you get to know kind of the people that are are, are perhaps more honest than someone who's looking uh, for us to start a project or to cut a deal or to hire more police or have our money fund those programs. So the truckers were the reality check that, that I got very quickly uh, in Iraq and their job was to move food. So a big indicator of stability um, in my view was, uh, is the food being moved to where it needs to go in order that we don't have revolts among the people. And I realized when things started to deteriorate that these truckers had a better sense of the pulse of their country than I ever would or any American ever would. And so I tried to channel their knowledge and wisdom into, into our government. How often were you uh, out in the field uh, meeting with, with folks you, you describe, um, you know, in your book, uh, the base that you were operating out of and the, the kind of plywood construction of things and HESCOs and all that, um, you know, what, was it fairly easy for you to, to get out and meet these folks at, in at least the, the early days or was it always complicated? In, in 2003 it was. There wasn't the raging insurgency, but in Fallujah, I was I was out. I mean, they would come into our our CMOC Civil Military Operations Center, which was a, mm -hmm. a burned Hesco barrel, razor wired, you know, machine guns on top. You know, we had an infantry company, you know, two hundred meters away, so it became a little Alamo. There was still the interaction, but it was on our turf, which didn't make it easy, and it wasn't ideal at all. I could not walk around Fallujah as the State Department representative and shake hands in the middle of the street, especially you know. Um, in the 0506 period, the biggest battle of the Iraq War had cleared the city, you know, in that November December period of 04, and then through that winter, things were pretty quiet. But the civilian population was still moving back into the city. But but very soon the insurgents picked up their pace as well. And the the main problem we had uh, was sniper activity, and we lost a lot of good Marines through snipers in that period. So. I was still very restricted and I didn't speak the language. So I was not a, an ideal uh, person in the room because I was reliant on an interpreter. I had good colleagues, um, Pat Carroll, Dave Meadows, Marine linguists who were beautiful in Arabic. So I, I tell people when I talk about the book, I did not make the right first impression, but I, I 
I, I stuck it out. And I think that there's a balance there between um, showing partners who are collaborating with you that you're very serious about what's underway. And I tried to do that uh, as much as I could, even though I was limited in terms of my security profile, my language ability, and all the other things that, you know, kind of bunker us up in a war zone. Mm-hmm. The, uh, a major theme of the, the book, which, which I really appreciated was, was, uh, about the, the disconnect. And, you know, I think that's such a great word to describe so many things. And you talk about this at a few different points about, you know, U S soldiers died because of this, Iraqis and Afghans died because of this, our policies were irrelevant or destructive because of this. Um, you know, walking around America or in DC, you don't many you don't meet many people who are kind of publicly advocating for destabilizing or, or chaotic uh, measures. Um, but depending on you know your point of view, that that is the net impact of of you know some of our our decisions. You know, where does this disconnect essentially start uh, in its purest form uh, in your experience? Well, I, I think that in war, any plan is going to be, you know, thrown out the window the first day. So that I, I try not to do a drive-by book, and maybe there are parts, you know, but I, I didn't want it to be the easy jabs because any of us who spend time in government in these wars could have written the comedy of the war. Um, and, and there's a little bit of that. I believe it was important to be fair about. You know, if a congressman's going to come to Fallujah and talk about dental readiness and the, the dental care of Marines, the right. general and I are going to look at each other and be like, well, this is a big disconnect when we've got bombs you know, blowing off the legs of our Marines. But but I think that uh, the farther you are from a place like Fallujah or the farther you are from Ambar, Baghdad, you know, Basra, you're going to be dominated by domestic considerations more than maybe by what's going on on the ground. And I saw that in both wars where I think there's a line in the book where I say, I realized that in a way American elections mattered more Mm -hmm. than any Iraqi or Afghan election. And I still believe that because the politics of the war got so wrapped up um, in perceptions that those disconnects, I think were then made even more of an issue. One, side wanted to say the war is failing it should never been started the other side was saying you know we're gonna we're still gonna win this they're they're only dead enders you know there is no insurgency so in a way i was lucky i could try and focus with the marine commanders and the marines on the ground and the soldiers the day-to-day and that was all background um but i think in any war you know many great books have been written about what that uh, process of disconnect is that communication is never clean communication is never as easy as we think it is with our headquarters whether it's on the military side or the state department side i found that the best counterinsurgents were were the third and fourth deployment troops who had been around the block in many parts of the country and then were back and had had built relationships and understood kind of how to close the gap and to close those disconnects but i think as long as war goes on uh, you're going to get that friction. You're going to get that that gap. Mm-hmm. It um, so your job there obviously was partially about explaining, you know, what what America was was doing in Iraq. You know, what was the language that that you used that actually kind of elicited any nods at any point, or were there was it always? Well, uh, the best line I had in Fallujah was, um, you know, 
Marines will one day go home and you, the religious leaders in the city of mosques, will be here forever. Because that truly was the dynamic that I wanted them to hear from me, the political representative. And that's what they wanted to hear from me. I had Fallujah leaders come up to me and say, you need to keep on saying that, that one day, you know, your troops will go home, but you'll have a more normal relationship with our country. That ended up shifting weirdly when they were more fearful of the Shia militia death squads than they were of, you know, Marines raiding their homes at night. So I always was trying to say, no, our goal is not to occupy your country and to suck all the oil out of your ground up north where you think we want it. The military commanders then had their side of the, the presentation, which is, you know, the enforcement side. There will be checkpoints. There will be raids if we need to do them. If Zarqawi is being protected here, you can't expect us to look the other way. So together, I think, and I had the privilege of working with a series of incredible regimental commanders and MFCGs even, because at that point, we forget, we had 38,000 troops in Western Iraq, and it was the three-star generals out of North Carolina and California that literally showed up in Ambar themselves to command. But together, we could, I think, try and balance out what our, our message was, which is the Marines are here to fight, and they'll fight hard. Uh, I'm here to say, but there's a better way forward, which is one day we want our, our troop levels to go down. The sooner, the better. The other line I used internally to Washington was every year in Fallujah, I understood 1%. And I wanted that to be a message of even a guy living full-time in Fallujah is really only going to be able to pull the, pull the skin back on this city very, very, very slowly. And it was a lot more than anyone else knew about Fallujah, but it was still, relatively speaking, small knowledge. And I, I, I think we, it behooves us as a country, even a superpower, to really understand how little we can learn in a seven-month tour, in a year tour, or even in a three-year tour, for that matter. And that's why I became very reliant on the partners that, are, that we worked with in the collaboration, I think is one of the most important chapters in my book, where I try and humanize who are these people that, that show up to work with the Americans after you've invaded their country. Mm -hmm. One of those relationships that you developed was with the leader of the Grand Mosque of, of Fallujah. You know, how was how that, re that relationship uh, developed and was your interaction with uh, religious leaders, you know, uh, advanced on, on the same way you advance your relationships with the truckers or was that, uh, you know, kind of a, a separate? Uh, no, they're different. For they're different. They're different types. Uh, it would be, you know, um, the, the 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 Grand Mufti of Fallujah, Sheikh Hamza, was one of those people that walk into a room that just has the wasta, the influence, has the charisma, has the quiet authority that I knew he was going to be my most important partner in the city. Besides, it was the city of mosques. It had more mosques per square block than anywhere else in Iraq, probably. Um, the truckers were, you know, literally charged with probably the most important job in the country, which is moving food. But in Fallujah, it became a microcosm. It became, in any city in the U.S., in a way, you would have some of these same dynamics. Who were the almost Rotarian types? Who were the religious leaders? If you're in Boston, the Catholics are going to be important. If you're in Salt Lake, the Mormons are going to be important. Similarly, I found in, in Fallujah, um, the tribal leaders increasingly became important. So which tribes did we need to spend more time with? Which tribes had supported us? Which tribes were 
somewhat complicit with the Al-Qaeda stuff. I mean, it was a real puzzle and three-dimensional chess at the same time. Um, and I knew that their knowledge uh, was the only way I was going to, with the Marines, figure out the minimal things we needed to do. But the religious leaders uh, were, I think, most important because they were whispering and also broadcasting the prayers every Friday. So Sheikh Han was a, and I, part of the motivation for the whole book is his story. And it is a tragic story because he did the right thing. He did not antagonize us intentionally and he did not rile up the people against us. Um, but in one case, a female Iraqi was detained uh, by our special operations forces. And I call it like I saw it, which is that th those operations made his death warrant. And if there's a name and a story, I hope that stick with readers, his is one. There's another one that I write about in Afghanistan, Dilawar of Yaqabi, but Sheikh Hamza, um, his story needed to be told. My book is an exercise of, I say, resurrection through words. I'm trying to bring back from the dead real characters who I believe deserve, at a minimum, 10 or 12 pages in a 600-page book. Um, so I'm still quite... Um, I don't know what the right word is about him because he didn't need to die. Um. Yeah, the chapter on that was absolutely uh, and it's got, fantastic. Yeah, it's got practical applications today too. So while my book quote isn't a policy book, mm -hmm. the policy lessons are woven into the stories. At least I hope that people you know, read it and get it that I, I, I didn't want to write a book of here are the five lessons from this part of Fallujah and here's how counter I could have done that. And it would have been boring as hell. <laughs> what I wanted to do is try and bring in these stories so that if someone reads it, whether you're a seal in Coronado or whether you're general Dunford at the Pentagon, although he lived these stories more than anyone, or whether you're a member of Congress or whether you're just an average concerned citizen that you'll understand that if you take an Iraqi female, um, and don't have a really good reason for it, uh, there's going to be repercussions, and we should think about are those repercussions outweighing any potential advantage? And in the two longest wars in our history, have we learned any of these lessons? Or are those types of operations, or are we, and I consider myself and all of us, still sort of okay with that? And, and maybe we are. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe we want to subcontract these wars out and not really hear about them or read about them. Uh, yeah, it's a lingering, uh, uncomfortable point. I think your, your last note there, um, you interacted at several points in, in Iraq and Afghanistan is the, the next section, but, um, with folks that, you know, very likely had, had ties to the insurgency and, you know, it's a simple criticism to say, Hey, we're, you know, we're, we're interacting or dealing with, with uh, terrorists, which I believe you got involved in at one point, um, you know, how, how do you reconcile the importance of talking to people who are, um, you know, fighting against you uh, or maybe fighting against, you know, what, what you're standing for um, uh, with the importance of understanding? No, like that, 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 that's a good question. I, I, I did not ever enter Fallujah looking at the world there in black and white at mm -hmm. all. The mm -hmm. two colors were gray and red way too much red and gray everywhere. So some of my military colleagues, and I don't fault them, had a harder time with that. And, and, and they were 
there's a clear line in their mind of if you were X then and you want to be Y now, we cannot. But that's not their job. That was my job because as the election process kicked up and went forward in 2005, the only way I thought and Ambassador Ford, my boss, and Ambassador Negroponte, my boss at the time, were fully supportive of me is if the Sunnis don't buy into this future Iraq, I always said to, to Washington and Baghdad, I don't think Baghdad's going to be able to wall off itself from the West. You know, you can't put, you know, a moat and a barricade all across the border of Baghdad and, and say to the Sunnis out West, you know, just kill your, you know, do your own thing and, 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 and Al Qaeda will kill you or you'll you know, kind of do your own thing. Um, so I, I always knew that in a way, and it was our strategy, it was uh, what we were advocating at all levels is to try and get that Sunni buy-in. Um, so the, I guess the, the lesson there is when you listen to the people you're, you're there to interact with, they can tell you kind of what you need to hear. Um, it, it's, it's not like they don't eventually want to come to some kind of, um, arrangement with you. Uh, and, and I think that, that even on the, the military side, I saw a lot of the guys that had come back on their second and third and fourth tours, they were more willing, I think, to reach out to the, to the former, not maybe hardcore Al Qaeda guys, but the active Bathist insurgency side. And I, I'll tell you this story. One of my closest, uh, uh, counterparts, he was not a religious leader in Fallujah said to me once, I used to know Fallujah. I used to know my hometown, but I don't know it anymore because things had been mixed up so tremendously in terms of the insurgency. I found, though, that some of the people that became our best allies were the ones that maybe a year or two years before had been fighting us. Why? Because they saw how worse it could get. You know, they, they understood that maybe enemy number one in 2004 was the United States Marine Corps or the U.S. soldier, or for that matter, you know, the political guy in the city council every week standing up. But by year two or three of our presence there, they were like, wait a minute, we're more worried about Iran, we're more worried about Muqtada al-Sadr, we're more worried about the, the death squads. And so then we became very pragmatic very quickly. War is about pragmatism on the ground. I mean, you can't, you know, get on your high horse, I think, and, th- and say, well, you know, that person may have done X three years ago. You can raise the point, but you're never going to start to end a war if you don't try and reach out and, 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 and find more stability with more, more people. The, uh, you've actually named, you know, quite a few people, um, uh, specifically, and I appreciate you, you doing that, you know, that you, that you've worked with, or you've kind of brought attention to the fact that, um, you know, these are, are real people with uh, their own complexities and all these on these things. Um, you know, we, we ask a lot of our, our guests about their, their views on kind of the, the arc or, or course of, of history, you know, and the classic tension just between, you know, it's, it's made by individual men and women who are very real and, and have, you know, names and parents, um, or are there general trends that simply are beyond one person's ability to, to influence um, I'm guessing I know where you stand on this, but uh, curious uh, your thoughts on that. Where do you think I stand on this? <laughs> I would, I would guess uh, you know the being on the ground, you see the role that directly uh, one individual can have in making or not making uh, something work. I would, I would, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, 
I would say that it's people who make decisions that, that affect lots of lives or, or, you know, whether it's, yes, presidents of the United States and prime ministers of Iraq, um, for sure. Um, but, but I do, I, I think that really warfare is about people, you know, it's about the cost among the average person that always will lose. No one wins in a war, really. No one. Countries may win, but I don't think people win in war. Humankind never wins in war. Mm-hmm. So in the Fallujah microcosm, uh, everyone lost and they're still losing. Um, who influences it more? Yeah, I could list, and I do in the book, as you say, who those key people were that, that, that stood up and, and worked with us, most of whom got assassinated. You take it all the way up the line to Baghdad, Washington, you know, these decision makers at that level hugely influenced. You know, I, 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 I write about decisions that led to the loss of marine lives and, and Iraqi lives in, in that part of the book. Um, I didn't continue the line all the way up to when I was in New York and my boss at the time, Secretary Powell, made the case for the invasion or President Bush not having, you know, a debate about whether we should invade or not. Those are men in high positions of power, Condoleezza Rice herself as well, who opted not to have a real debate about warfare in our war cabinet. So, you know, that's not theoretical. That's not ethereal. It's is a war cabinet debating war, war and whether to invade or not. They didn't. By the time you get to us in Fallujah, then yeah, it's about is this Marine Colonel, is this Marine General, am I going to try and reduce some of the frictions and some of the, the costs of these wars as much as we can? We tried. I mean, a lot of what we tried to do at that point of the war and why I stayed for three years is I, I could at least in a small way try and minimize um, some of those costs because I'd been around long enough to sort of know how to get things done. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. But I don't believe maybe that this there's this big pendulum, you know, that is inherently swinging on its own. I think that there are hands and fingers that push it. And, and, and those, are, those are the people we love to read about, both villains and heroes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, switching to Afghanistan, uh, you spent a year or about a year in uh, host coast and yeah, about a year and a half, almost two years, and then a year in Helmand. Okay, um, you know, I uh, I have a few notes here. I just the the first thing is um, in this work, you also worked for um, the U.S. Special Envoy for Afghanistan and Pakistan, Richard Holbrook, and uh, you you wrote a sentence that you know practically printed out and taped to my wall and it says, you know, this, and you're referring to the area of the Pakistan-Afghanistan border, um, you know, it was dangerous territory and exactly where one of America's foremost statesmen should be spending their time. Um, you know, by contrast, and even to just stay with Afghanistan, um, you know, the, the U.S. Embassy and a lot of folks, the, essentially the security protocols, if you will, don't allow for uh, a lot of this type of engagement, the road and cobble even between the U.S. Embassy and the airport, which is just a mile right. too long, is yeah. now closed and people use helicopters. Um, you, you know, I was wondering, how important is it to get out there? I guess it's echoing the question I asked in Iraq, but, you know, you seem to think that uh, Ambassador Holbrook out there meeting these folks was practically duty. Um, can we do that enough um, uh, as we currently function 
you know, well, the security the, the, concerns. Yeah. The iron bubbles that we're in, even like you say, more so now than when I was in Afghanistan and I went back for some visits and that road was still open. But the, the iron bubble that we're in that is of our own making for understandable security reasons uh, is so self-defeating. But I also understand the pragmatism of how can you get out, you know, if you're with the State Department or USAID, if our troop levels have been retracted to the point that there aren't even FOBs, there aren't even military basing structures and all of the, the, the assets that come with our force laydown. So I think that you got to be realistic. I don't think any Secretary of State's going to ever want to say to the diplomatic corps, go out and you know dodge bombs you know, in order to have chai with the right religious leaders <laughs> and the right tribal leaders. But, but if you are serious about warfare and you're serious about what you need to understand in order to end those wars, I don't think you can just have it be official interactions in Kabul. I don't think you can just have it be inside the green zone in Baghdad. So what happened in these wars is I think we confuse troop levels with commitment. And I said this to Ambassador Holbrook, rest in peace, you know, one of the last great statesmen. I mean, I'm still looking for the, for the new ones, but, you know, I said, the Afghans always told me, we don't need more boot prints. You know, I said, like on the red carpet, you know, you're going to wear out the welcome rug with too many boot, boots on it. What we want is a signal of endurance. And, and I think that they also wanted to see that the conversations weren't just about the military operations that I would deal with with the battalion commanders and the brigade commanders. It was about, yes, the projects. It was about, is the quality of life uh, more or less getting better? Are their children going to be able to go to school? So that Afghan chapter or that Afghan section was my way of sort of saying, leaving the, the cauldron of Fallujah to go to a place like Host, which is where Osama bin Laden spent time. It's not an easy neighborhood. There was still progress that we had achieved by being out among the people in terms of, yes, the soft power, the nation building, the city building. I'm not an advocate for having our military turn into a nation building core. But if we decide certain parts of the world are important to us, I think it's it's a mistake. And I know Holbrook, he and I talked about this in host, to just think that the drone armada above uh, and the high Mars on the ground, as we had in, in, in Helmand, which are these basically missiles launched from the ground are going to are going to do it and i think the most advocates for this kind of wider approach listening to the people being about among them are our military commanders i mean those guys you know petraeus uh, mccrystal general nicholson general dunford i mean all these leaders that have been forged in war understand that that type of interaction hardware to hardware is never ending so it's a it's a tough situation because now it's not easy to reinsert ourselves in places and there's an argument that we found ourselves in places we should never have been why because we surged troops i think i think we escalated a war unnecessarily we escalated in terms of troop levels and it's like a big kind of inverted v we went up quickly and then the temptation was to drop quickly and what i would rather have seen which i think would have allowed for maybe more consistent uh, people-to-people interaction was go low to go long. And I, 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 whether right or wrong, I've been advocating that for over a decade. We, we should go low, as low whatever low is. You know, let, let the analysts debate it and the smart people debate it. But I think the lower you can manage to go on trip levels, the longer you're going to be able to sustain it. Mm-hmm.
Mm-hmm. Uh, while chatting with a Coast U student, uh, you you put a quote in your book that says, um, you know, Afghanistan cannot be built by projects alone. It can only be built through uh, security. This is, again, something that's in the newspapers and, and you know, a lot of people want to talk about this. A uh, few people's jobs actually depend on, on doing this. Um, you know, what are the literal mechanics of, of showing up into an area and saying, okay, we need to uh, promote security in this place? You know, what are the tools that... that that's a lot of... Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of a lot of you know finding out who the power brokers are. This is not easy stuff. This does not happen quickly. And there is a, a legitimate argument on the other side that by overstretching ourselves, we made the situation worse. And I'm I'm open to and in some ways nod my head on that. Um, but it, the mechanics of it literally are unless you have a military backbone, a military infrastructure, it ain't going to happen. You can't. We're not going to bring in the Blackwater guys to like put State Department diplomats in, you know, MRAPs, you know, we're not going to have the Blackhawks, you know. So I think that these wars almost kind of brought out the worst instincts in us in a way, which is there's no mission we Americans don't think we can't do, especially, I I would say, I love the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps, (laughs) there's there's no mountain too high they will not charge up and over and down into. And you wrote about this. You you said something to the effect of, you know, it was almost like a note of concern about the American penchant to do all things in record time. That's what you're saying. And and we had unlimited budgets, basically. You (laughs) you do your own budget in the military pipeline. It's almost like monopoly money. And I love our military leaders, but boy, you know, I've never seen as big as checkbooks as I've seen when I've been working with generals. I mean, the generals I worked with, I believe, had in the middle parts of the war up to a million or $2 million signing authority and, and, and even a lot more the higher up the food chain you got, which I believe we needed at a level. I think it, it's wrong to say, oh, this nation building, you know, was, was the big sand trap. It's what we got caught in. And, and yes, we sort of did. But but if you're going to escalate troops into these areas, I would say that, you know, and you probably talk to these people on your podcast, it's not like you can just go in and wear a new uniform and with your rifle and say, you know, we'll shoot the bad guys, you know, whenever we find them, you know, have a good day. Um, because <laughs> right. most of what I was hearing was, most of what I was hearing was, I do want my kids in school. I do want, you know, a better uh, health system, you know, but but we should we should be wary of, of what, where where our limits are and i think one of the best lessons to come from afghanistan and iraq is we have limits you know the the american superpower which we didn't see back in 2003 i mean i remember when we were at the height of our national power people forget it was before the mortgage meltdown it was before you know everything that went we went through our troops on their fourth fifth sixth tour um we were we were kind of all muscle at the time twitch muscle and I think what we now see is that even we have limits, that there are certain parts of the world, there are certain things that just are never going to work because, A, we want it to, or we're going to pay for it, or we're going to set up an election schedule with purple fingers. And I think that's healthy because I think that will eventually keep us a stronger world leader, a more realistic, a more chastened world leader. But it shouldn't be that we abandon. It shouldn't be that we say, oh, the new Weston or the new Nicholson uh, cannot be in a certain location. So let's just sort of ignore it. You know, let, let's just focus on the home homeland. I think that's a recipe for, for more problems. Mm-hmm. 
would you say to your point about you know lessons learned um would you say beyond kind of a, a general wariness of of sending troops or or trying to majorly engage foreign countries um you know that there've been kind of systematic or kind of in the bone in the actual laws and policies that that we run on would you say that that that's been uh adapted or, or essentially you know pull, pulled into the heart on um uh, in kind of the next generation of, of, you know, people who implement foreign policy? I hope so. I think that, you know, my small contribution was a big book, you know, 600 page book, but I think that what's happening is a lot of voices are, 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 are coming back from the wars and I, I find it helpful and, and, and kind of, um, right that people are debating these wars while they're still going on. I don't know if, the turnover, uh, you know, is ideal still that there's a still, I think a lot lost and so many of our, our key people have done it for so long. They're getting out. And I see that a lot on the military side too. Um, but I think that the, the, the nation itself independent of whether you were in these wars in any capacity are starting to, to think about these questions, which is, should we, have 10,000 troops in Afghanistan for a while, if that may create a, a minimal level of security so that we don't find ourselves sort of with a repeat maybe of what we saw in Iraq. Um, you know, it's a presidential election year, and I think some of these issues aren't definitely top of the list right now, but at least there's some discussion going on. I think that the junior people, um, some want their war, and I tell them, trust me, you don't. <laughs> Um, and maybe the only way they'll learn is is when they find themselves, you know, who knows, in Syria or whatever. You know, the, there's this view that intervention, the era of intervention is over. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that if you're a fearful country or you're afraid that terrorism may strike you again here, a large chunk of, of our people may be willing to say, yeah, go send in the 1st Marine Division again there or if depending on who our commander in chief is, let's bomb more there. So these are all still very live issues and very, very important ones. I think among the mid ranks and the people who remember 2001 because they were old enough, uh, the lessons are sort of uh, scarred into your soul and, and into your, your wiring. You mentioned the mechanics of, of tours and this is something that, uh, you know, definitely uh, Alex and I are familiar with, I think anybody who's, who's been to these countries, um, you know, the mechanics of a tour are such that, you know, if you work for USAID or, or state or others, you'll go to a place for a year or two um, and then be up for a new tour. There are obviously exceptions to that as well, but the vast majority of people, and you also mentioned turnover just now, um, you know, is that system of going to a place for a year or two and then, then moving on, um, does, does that work? Does there need more examination of, of kind of how we approach a uh, country uh, or a region? Uh, you know, I had a bunch of friends at the State Department who kind of made it pretty clear that they were going to Kabul so that, you know, the, the next post was uh, they had a better shot at, you know, getting, yeah, getting a yeah. great post to Paris. Heart, do your heart. <laughs> yeah. Ship and then rotate into into uh, uh, the Hague. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, is is a year or two? You'd mentioned that you know you never fully understand a place, and of course there are limits. You, you can always kind of say, oh, we need to understand more. It's the easiest card in the world to play. But um, you know, the mechanics of of you know one or two years in a country and then move on. That's kind of the pillar of of our engagement across agencies. I, I that, think I, ideally, 
ideally you have the regional i've got a good friend who's he's now in a military command as the senior diplomat but he was an, one of our ambassadors in africa and he's an africanist i mean he knows that part of the world better than anyone in the state department and so he's been able to build a regional expertise that isn't just you know war zone tied and i think that's the real strength of the state department is you get people who may not be in one country you know over and over and over but they they become the linguistic the anthropological the cultural experts and that that's huge value robert ford you know one of my mentors and bosses our last ambassador in damascus i mean he's an Arabist, and i saw the magic he had with iraqis based on the language expertise based on his tours in the region but yes if you're going to be you know looking at the ideal game plan continuity really matters because of the signal you're sending to your partners and your collaborators and that's why i did stay in fallujah not because I'm a hero or anything, it's because I wanted them to, to think, okay, the American embassy guy is serious about this. You know, he, he's getting to know the neighborhood. Yeah, it's not a lot, but it's it's enough that we can we can work through deals. So that's the ideal. In reality, getting people to stay away from their families in, in an increasingly violent, dangerous place for more than a year tour. I just think that's I'm not sure there's the leadership and the will. Uh, institutionally or politically to do that. Um, and that's also, again, a disconnect to go back to your earlier point of these wars haven't felt like national wars. If right. you know you were in World War II and stayed in Europe until the war was over, that was sort of how it was. There was a draft. And, and I think there was a mobilization that probably lended itself more to that ideal will get people and the fpac the fpac program that the defense department stood up about midway through you know where we are in afghanistan was intended for exactly that that you would build um those expertises and you'd get people that could become the pashto and the dari speakers and that would have the relationships on the ground and in principle i fully agree with that um but but i also saw that there was going to be well are we over investing in these war zones? And I know when Condoleezza Rice was our, our Secretary of State, she wanted to push people to the war zones, whereas there were other people saying, we're overemphasizing the wars. We're overemphasizing an unnecessary war, which was you know their view and my view in the case of Iraq. So if you're the United States, you've got the globe to look at, and that pivot to Asia, I think, is a counter clearly to what high-level people believe to be an overinvestment that we shouldn't be sending people again and again and again to a war that should never have been started or to a war that we should start to disconnect from um, and that's sort of just the reality of how war management happens in washington and it's the resource flow as well suddenly the bills came due um, for most of the middle part of the war no one, no one cared about supplemental funding eventually like wait a minute we're spending trillions of dollars in these wars and you know the bridge in minnesota fell down people right. start to think whoa, whoa, whoa and that that became i saw and i try and reference that a bit in my book that, that the politics of the wars were shifting based on how the home front was looking at the cost of these wars not because they knew anyone over there but because they'd been going on for so long and now you know they are they're the two they're the two longest in our history mm-hmm you just mentioned the uh, languages, and it's something we, we love to talk about, um, you know, here here on the show. Um, the the 
kind of standard operating procedure of always interacting via translators, you know, is it possible or, or the logistics and mechanics of it just kind of too ridiculous to, is there any way to solve the issue of, nope, we're going to send people over to these countries who, who speak the language at a, at a like high enough level to, um, yeah, well, you've got, directly. you've yeah. got great examples of people who did that, you know, yeah, exactly. So we had Ambassador Ford. We had, you know, and, and the Fallujans, you know, would tell me, you've got to put Ambassador Ford on the TV more. We love him. I mean, he had a huge cult following in Fallujah because his Arabic is so beautiful and he was such a good, you know, literally face and, and voice for, for, for the occupier, for the Americans. I have this call, you know, this former colleague who's our ambassador was in Africa. He, he says he'll never go to a country unless he's done the full language training, which is a great, I, I mean, it's a great principle. You know, he will not go until he's conversational. Um, and he served in Northern Iraq and was. So, you know, I respect that side of, of the system and there's language training, you know, at FSI that allows for that. But the problem with the way sort of these wars kicked off is they were so urgent that there was right. such a push to get people. I think that's a big lesson that, that will, will probably stick mm-hmm. um, when you're not invading a country like Iraq with 150,000 troops, you know, in, in uh, spring of 03. And, you know, you're kind of redirecting focus there. You could probably game out getting the right language speakers, getting the right regionalists there. Um, but then there's the flip side. Sometimes if you've been in a region too long, you go native that way. Right. And right. so it's a balance. I, I don't believe that the best representatives of the United States always are the most expert in that region, because at some level there's a distance that is helpful as well. Um, I went native with the Sunnis in the West, um, and with the Marine Corps, I don't think that really undercut what we we're trying to do, but I think from a system wide perspective uh you have to look at the right mix and the right balance but to to the linguist specifically yes it was a huge um filter and and it was i always knew um again not making the right first impression and i was so reliant on that translator it's almost like out of a star trek movie that i know there was a lot lost in translation there was no universal translator it was human beings getting tired after a two-hour meeting and one time i remember i knew it a bit at least enough arabic sort of shui shui is like no do the whole interpretation not <laughs> you know the cliff note version but I, you know i i don't know if there's another way to do it i i think um you know we're we're renowned for for probably being compared to other diplomatic corps not as good as we could be but i have to say i've met a lot of people in our system that that did it right and they're still doing it right but they have to you know be given the time to do two years of hard language or even more before you show up is a balance between well maybe you're needed sooner to get the job started rather than to be proficient you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the best diplomats are the ones who speak the language know the history uh understand uh, the arc, you know, of that part of the world, for sure. And Ambassador Crocker, Ambassador Ford, Ambassador Lascaris, yeah, I could, I could name a number of them. They're out there. Mm-hmm. Switching to to the the book itself, um, you know, how how did the the book come together? This is kind of the you have an idea for for writing the book. Uh, you know, did you? 
open up Microsoft Word one day and just kind of like keep <laughs> chipping away and get a cup of coffee. As some people do that, uh, you know, where they're they're toolsy used. Well, uh, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not an author that says, oh, everyone said you had to write a book, so I wrote a book. I believed I had something to say. So <laughs> so I'm not one of these guys that, oh, everyone, you got to write a book. They did say that, but I was like, hell yeah, I know I, I want to try and get Shea Combs' story into a book. I want to try right. and resurrect these people. And because I knew them, because I'd stayed so long, I'm like, if I don't do it, no one will ever know Hobbs' story. Right. And so that was a huge motivation. Again, it's a resurrection book as much as I could do through, you know, 600 pages. It's also, you know, an accountability book. I believe that some of the literature out there is missing a lowercase p for political frame, that wars get started and our decisions are made and we shouldn't pretend that it's just about, you know, me and my platoon. That's an important story, but there's also an overlay of the United States of America going to war. And because of my job, I felt like I had curtains that I could at least try and pull back in as objective way as I could and in as the best writing I could so that it's not a counterinsurgency 501 lessons learned book. It's these are the stories, these are the people. Um, yes, part of my journey wrapped in that. Um, the mechanics, mechanics are I had two shoebox full of of, of audio tapes. When I went away to school in Seattle for my first year of college, my parents were like, you got to tell us what's going on. How's it going? So I used to literally like speak into one of those old fashioned tape recorders. Well, <laughs> when I was away in the war, they're like, you're not telling us what's going on. I'm like, I'll send you tapes. So I didn't even rely on as much as those as I could because it was almost too much information. So I have literally one day I made to try and do a different kind of book audio you know, the day Sheikh Hamz is killed and assassinated, I'm venting into an audio recorder and you can hear the you know, calls to prayer in the background in the middle of Fallujah. And that's all incredible audio, but it's also in terms of writing where the details came from. When I, when I had a chapter done and needed to go back and cross-reference dialogue, facts, you know, I would pull, I would pull those, uh, those, those recordings out. And then I had a mountain up, pile of uh, green notebooks, you know, those military issue notebooks. So it became first drafts, second drafts, fact checking, adding the details. Um, but the bigger reason why is because I felt like I could offer something new. I could offer something um, maybe worthwhile to, to some people that had a different frame on it, not just because of all the longevity of my time in the wars, but because of the windows into the wars that I wanted. If you were a Marine Corporal 10 years ago and you're sitting in Ohio right now and you're like, whatever was going on in Fallujah in those rooms that I didn't get into, you know, I try and get a chapter in there that, that they might find interesting. Or when senators and congressmen come to the war zone, I believe that's an important chapter. It's an accountability chapter. You know, these are the people that vote for or against war. So it's a long book. It's uh, you know not a quick read. It's not an easy read. It's it got, it's doing trying to do a lot. Um, but I found the most rewarding parts were getting to get on paper uh, some of the Iraqi and the Afghan stories because until they tell their own stories, I feel like my book and some others that are out there are are, are at least a bridge halfway. The best the best mirror tests from these wars will come from them. And I can't wait until there's an archive of 
I hope one day the Fallujans writing about the Americans in their city mm-hmm. and there's future books and projects I have in mind where I might be able to help that because I've, I've got a great publisher that can get books out into the world. And I hope that someday we're reading the raw voices, you know, the unfiltered versions of the war. Cause I'm still a filter. I'm still have my biases. I still have made my decisions on what to focus on. And that's why I end the book with the soldier's journal because I wanted his voice to be just raw and pure how it is when you're in the middle of Sauter City and why I end with, you know, the friends and family for the, uh, for the Marines who were killed in the helicopter crash. I, uh, I'm sure, uh, everybody, myself very much included, and definitely listeners to this would be very interested in staying posted on the Fallujah stories if, if anything comes of that. So it sounds like a fantastic undertaking. Um, you know, in terms of your day-to-day use of, um, uh, you know, what, what you're up to, uh, day to day now that it seems you're embarking on, you mentioned a second book, maybe, um, you know, are there any tools or, or, um, you know, ways of, of approaching things that you use in, in kind of your day to day life to, uh, like how to write, how yeah, to write. how to write, how to just even accomplish, you know, your goals in general. Um, any tips or tricks or is it all? Yeah, I'm not a writer. I'm not a writer that I won't name names, but I know many good veteran writers who are very disciplined and write a thousand words a day. I'm not one of those people. (laughs) If if I'm motivated and the coffee's full and I feel like I've got something to say, I I may hit that. I may go more. Um, I spend most of my time thinking about what I'm going to write about. This book actually was in formation in my mind between national parks out West really, because I needed to think about how am I going to start to dig into seven, my seven year archive. I had too much information. I had too many stories. I had the good, the bad and the ugly. It wasn't like I was trying to reach for that one near death experience and take it 20 pages. I mean, you you know, in my book, (laughs) I come, I come, pile all of my near-death experiences into one long paragraph at the end of my book and my editor's like i love it you need to keep that in i'm like i don't know does it sound like i'm trying to be like no he's like no people need to know that which is true but i compress it all together because that was never going to be my war story right my war story i wanted to be literally the bridge between our military and the local population and their 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 stories, their faces, their names are what I really wanted to try and invest my time writing on. How to how a book becomes a book. I mean, I can tell you what I've learned from when I, I, I shopped my proposal around, went to the big publishers in New York, where I think the market's going. I mean, I, it's my job now, so I take it very seriously about how war literature is evolving, um, how I think it's a good place right now compared to maybe where it was you know, three or four years ago what I still think is maybe missing uh, out there. And I'll say this, and maybe some of your listeners are, you know, veterans or family members uh, who are not on either coast, uh, that I still think the best books from these wars are to be written. So don't give up because those journals that you have, those emails, those maybe recordings are going to, I think, only kind of like wine get better over time. And I think, as my editor says, and he's a great editor at kind of a random house, they'll always buy a good book. The discipline of writing, uh, I find for me, is I spend most of my time in the thinking about the writing. Once I'm on the page and on the computer, if I've done the due diligence in framing in my own mind where I'm going and how I'm going to get there and what the scenes are and, and the characters, it can happen at a pretty good pace. And then there's not a huge amount of revision on my own screen once i get to that point 
I intentionally picked a fiction editor overwhelmingly. He does fiction versus nonfiction. Why? Because I felt like my weakness was going to be uh, probably writing a book that a former State Department government employee would, which would be almost too factual, too dry. So I felt like I was lucky I found a good fit of, of Tim O'Connell, who buys a lot of interesting books, and he's dominantly a fiction editor. And I read an interview by Marlon James once, who's, you know, a famous Booker winner, and he said he did the opposite. As a fiction writer, he wanted a nonfiction editor, and so for his big book... Uh, that guy is uh, mostly a, a nonfiction editor. So not to compare myself to Marlon James at all, but I was looking for the, <laughs> for, for the, for the, um, my weakness. And I wanted a, a guy uh, at Random House who had thought, you know, made his career on editing novels and fiction. And I think it was hard for me because he would say, slow down, build the scene, build the character, or what about that? And I'd have to say, but it didn't, didn't happen that way. Or, I didn't know enough. I can't take it there, right? So I'm almost jealous of my fiction counterparts because one day I may want to try and write fiction because I would like to take a character in a direction that didn't happen, in fact. Or I would like to you know, not make the ending as tragic as I had to make some of these in my book because that's just how they died. Um, and there's a certain, I think, freedom and flexibility of imagination that I couldn't have done first. I had to do the nonfiction account first because I think there's real power in war writing that is nonfiction. That is, here's here's the witness account. Here's the accountability account. And I, 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 I worked hard to try and do that in this first book. Mm -hmm. As a um, switching gears uh, a little bit, um, as, as one of our concluding notes here, uh, mindful of your time, you know, if somebody says to you, um, Hey, you know, uh, everything you're talking about, it's exactly what I want to, I want to get involved in. I want to go join the state department, come foreign service officer, et cetera. Um, what, what would be the, the biggest piece of advice that, that you have for them? Well, I give a lot of, uh, a lot of advice actually because a lot of military <laughs> friends who are out of the military no they, they asked me it's a great question they asked me that, that because i think the perfect cyborg in the system today is people who have been in these war zones that maybe realize they want to do something um different or not have the same kind of chain of command i would say that that the state department is looking a lot more like the rest of america than it was you know when i joined what was it it's been now 15 years 16 years ago um, it's not quite only white male pale from Yale. It's a lot more of, <laughs> of other things. And that, and that's good because the world, you know, the world needs to see us in all of our diversity and strengths and weaknesses. So I also would say that there's no set game plan to pass the exam. I don't think you can, you know, just read every New York Times paper that comes out and start with the culture section and finish with A1 you know, read widely, um, go overseas. I'm always an advocate for when you're out of college, like you've done and Alex, for sure. You both have, have these incredible experiences. Go see the world because you're only going to be able to understand America by living the rest of the world. And I, 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 I believe Absolutely. that fundamentally that you'll only be able to represent the United States well, uh, by not just, over a summer, not just in a two-week tour to Venezuela or Italy or Japan, um, but to really cut yourself off from 
your country for a while. And it's, you know, a lesson in so many ways. And then by the time you've had that experience, whether it's a language program, Peace Corps, military, you will become the better diplomat because you will know what our country looks and sounds like oceans away. And it's that empathy thing. It's that, well, you now know how they see us because you're among them the good and the bad. And that's why that Spirit of America chapter and some of those chapters at the end that are more add-on that weren't in the original plan, I'm still glad we did. Because even with these wars and sort of showing us maybe not at our best, there are still our allies out there. And I, I, I'll maybe I'll finish with this before you ask me you know, any other final questions, that the best ambassadors we have are not our official ambassadors in our embassies, they're the ambassadors in the generation that say, okay, the Americans still represent this, even though that. And I learned that from the generation of Afghan college students. I learned it from you know, the madrasa students. I learned it from the junior imams in Fallujah, that even though we were at war in their countries, they were still understanding sort of there's a country that, yes, you can be a Muslim and you're okay. You know, you're not the Muslim. I mean, you can debate it maybe now, but you're not going to be rounded up or you're not going to be you know, pointed and that you're different. You're, you know, your religion's wrong. And that's where we're going to find our greatest safety. That's where we're going to find our, great, our greatest global stability is if we're that leader that people want to follow, not because they're fearful of us or our military. So, yes, go overseas. Go, go to a hard place like you've done. Go to... I wouldn't say go to Iran, but but go <laughs> yeah, go go, there. <laughs> go go to places that 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 maybe are going to challenge you to your core, and then if you want to join the State Department AID, when they ask you the question, so why are you qualified or what do you want to do? And I read people's essays; they'll send them to me, and I'll say, you know, when I took the exam, we didn't have the essay. They've changed the exam so many times, and we didn't have the biographic essay. Now I'm saying that's your, you know, your best opportunity is to say, here's what I lived, here's what I experienced, and uh, I think it's 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 a much better kind of vetting system now because I think it allows people to tell their story, and you can build your own story. You can build your own story by the age of 24, or you know, you don't have to be 30. That is a fantastic answer to that question. Uh, total rallying cry. Uh, thank you very much. Well, we for that. we we need we need. I mean, there there is no greater honor or challenge than representing the United States of America, especially in a time of war. And I miss my old job for sure. I feel like writing is public service in its own way. You know, I've received emails from a recent high school graduate in North Carolina, a Catholic high school teacher in Oregon. Yesterday, no kidding, I got an email from a Nobel laureate. I won't name him. Not a Peace Prize winner, but he won the economics laureate, and I won't go into the details. But once your book is out in the world, citizen readers, you find, are looking for this type of stuff. And it's whether it's the, the war novel, and there are a lot of good ones out there, whether it's the poetry, whether it's a nonfiction book like mine. I got a, I mean, the best story is a, a woman, an older woman from California emailed me and said, thank you. I've been trying to find a book that gets into the Iraqis, the Afghans. She said, I finally went into my, my dentist's office, who is kind of a warmonger and, you know, pro-war this, pro-war that. And I kind of finally stood up to him because I had the information. And she ended her email by saying, I think I'm going to have to find a new dentist. <laughs> and so, so, so there are different ways to, to contribute 
but I'll say for anyone who's looking to, to, to join the Foreign Service to work in Washington um, as a public servant and overseas, there's no greater honor than representing our country. And there is no greater challenge at the same time. And we need people um, that are the good voices of America, you know, that are the voices that understand here's how we can convey a tough message better. Here's how empathy does not need to be studied because it's already been learned. Here's why, yes, you can speak a language because you were an exchange student there and you've already made the right first impression unlike myself in both wars. So there's no rush. Don't, 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 you know, rush yourself into this type of career. Take your time, get to know yourself, know where you're strong, know where you're weak. Don't be afraid of your weaknesses, uh, challenge yourself. And then by the time you're looking at these careers, I think our country's always gonna, gonna, gonna be able to hopefully find a place for you. Fantastic. Um, what are you up to now and how can people follow what, what you're doing is well, Twitter, I, I guess I, best. Or, no, I, I don't tweet and I, I've never had Facebook. Um, Fantastic. I, I just, you know, I, I still have a hotmail email and I was in at a college speaking in Oregon and they said, you must be really old <laughs> if you're still using hotmail. But I, I do have a, I do have a, a, a website that kind of is very focused on the book and I've got, an email address, jkwestonmt at gmail.com. So I've, I've upgraded on that website to a, a book-related email. But I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm, I'm always looking forward to hearing what people liked and didn't like about the book, um, where the book you know resonated, where maybe it didn't so much, or which parts are, are, are worthwhile and, or, or not at all. Um, I am looking at doing another book. You know, we'll see if, if that whole process moves forward here in the next uh, couple months. And and at least for a while, I want to write. Uh, one day, maybe I'll be lucky and I'll be back in government. But right now, I feel like uh, public service in the form of uh, the written word is maybe time best spent right now. Fantastic. And, um, you know, as, as a parting note for, for the show, we, we ask our listeners... Um, they have uh, picks. It's uh, you know a movie, a piece of music, and a book. I was just wondering if you'd had uh, any time to pick uh, one of those. Yeah, I'm going to give some homework. I'm going to give some homework. Not that it's it's like eating, <laughs> awesome. eating your eating your broccoli, but but since we've talked about wars for an hour, and I mentioned them a bit in the book, uh, you know, hit in certain spots that I get a little bit personal. But I'll say that the the most powerful, I still think, television about war that has still concrete parallels to today is the 1973-74 British television series World at War. And I'll, I'll, I'll focus on one one episode. It's episode 18. You can get all this online, I believe. If not, it's worth ordering the whole DVD set. Because what, it, what they did, and it's narrated by Laurence Olivier, is they let the Europeans at war speak directly to you. They find, you know, the former soldier they find the resistance fighter and the one episode that has moved me more than anything i've ever seen in my whole life and i'm middle-aged now is is episode 18 titled occupation and they they focus on the dutch experience and and it's quite well known inside certain circles because of the interviews they do but i'll just say if you want to if you want to watch powerful documentary uh, making and powerful storytelling and what i tried to do a little bit in my book which is let the let the people speak for themselves. Uh, watch that whole series, but I would say it's episode 18, titled Occupation Holland. 
Um, that would be sort of, uh, you know, eat your broccoli on the, on the music, you know, as I get older, I, I look at the flashbacks of the eighties and you guys are all too young for that. You probably are, but, uh, <laughs> there's still a great song that Elliot Ackerman stole from me. Um, but it, it's, it's love vigilantes, uh, by new order. And for anyone who's been touched by these wars, whether a family member or a service member, it's really got a powerful message to it. And Bernard Sumner, who was the lyricist kind of describes online kind of what he was thinking behind it. Um, but it's, 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 it's a powerful message. And on YouTube, some creative person has kind of put the song to imagery from these wars. It's kind of very much a YouTube anti-war video, um, but but it's it's powerful lyrics and I think uh, also um, uh, good music. Books, um, you know, I'm a fan of what Carter Malkasian did uh, with War Comes to Garmshire. It's it's a it's a book that I think does Afghans uh, better than. Well, Alex has done great work for sure, um, but he's probably talked uh, about that himself. But I would say Carter Malkasian's book is is in a very special category because of the discipline he put into his time recording what happened in Garmshire District in, in Helmand. I'm looking forward to a lot of books coming out here um, soon. Lee Carpenter uh, is coming out with a, a new novel. Uh, in the intelligence world, I read Elliot Ackerman's new uh, novel, Dark at the Crossing, which is a very powerful, tight read. Um, but I'm still rooting for the uh, uh, for the writer, maybe that hears this, that's living far from Brooklyn and far from LA. So keep on, <laughs> keep on scribbling. And and I'm now in the publishing world, and I, I I try and impart as much wisdom as I can because I learned a lot of lessons between when I sold my book and when my book came out. Um, so I'm happy to uh, to answer those questions by email. I can't sell books for people, but I can definitely <laughs> tell you what I learned and what I wish I had known five years ago when my book was doing the rounds in New York. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, Kale, that does it for, just, for the show. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us. Really appreciate it. Hey, Matt, I appreciate you doing this, and thank you for asking some good questions and taking time uh, with my uh, 608 page to 103,625 word book. Cause I know it, it, it takes <laughs> real, real effort to, uh, uh, I finally asked my production editor, I said, I'm just curious cause I'm about to pull every hair out of my body out of my, you know, how, how many words were we in is, you know, my contract was for 90, whether that's good or bad, I mean, but, but there were a few things to say. So I'm grateful you spent time talking to people about these issues and, uh, and, uh, I've enjoyed our, our hour. Yeah, thanks so much.